We're in Mark chapter 10. We've come as, verse, as far as verse 46. It says, When they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So Jesus has been on the east side of the Jordan there, ministering, speaking to people, uh, his disciples, talking to them once again about who's the greatest. And he continues his journey to Jerusalem at this point, and he goes through Jericho on his way from east of the Jordan River. This is where Joshua had led the Israelites across the Jordan, which God halted so that they crossed over on dry land as the priests and Levites entered the river and were told it piled up way upstream, you know. Jericho was completely destroyed by Israel as they entered the land. You know the story, they marched around the city for six days, marching around the city seven times on the seventh day, and then blowing the trumpets, all the people shouting, and the walls falling down flat. The event is wonderfully preserved and supported by archaeological discovery, but dated incorrectly so that the secular world can deny its historical reality. But everything at the site, uh, burned grain and so forth, everything at the site matches what's recorded in the book of Joshua concerning the destruction. The walls are, are flat there. The scriptures are God-breathed. Man's dating methods are unreliable. Jericho had been rebuilt before the time of Jesus, either on top of the ruins or nearby. Uh, and Joshua, when the city was destroyed, he pronounced a curse of the Lord from the Lord upon any who would rebuild the ruined city. It's in Joshua chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. It says, Joshua charged him at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Well, this was fulfilled. This was around 1451 B.C. when Joshua pronounced this uh, curse. And it was fulfilled in, in around 918 B.C., so hundreds of years later. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we read about it. It's during the reign of Ahab in the north. It says, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, so that would be an actual pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You could add them all together. And in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn. With his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the city that Jesus is going through. A great multitude is accompanying Jesus and his disciples, and a man identified as blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. By definition, that's, his, that's what his name means, Bar-Timaeus. Like Bar-Son, you know, Simon Bar-Jonas. Simon, the son of Jonas. So this is, his, uh, you know, I don't know if everybody called him this all the time or if he had his own name, but he was known here as Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And he's begging by the roadside. The name Timaeus means highly prized. 
So he's the son of a highly prized person. Mark identifies this man by name, at least by his name Bartimaeus. Luke calls him a certain blind man. Matthew tells us there were two blind men involved and healed. Apparently this certain blind man was later well known among the believers and perhaps his father Timaeus as well. Uh, We see here that he continued with Jesus following him. It's been pointed out that there are people who deny the inerrancy of Scripture because they can't reconcile the accounts of the Gospels here, the blind men. Matthew mentions two blind men. Mark centers his attention on Bartimaeus because he's the one who spoke out. This person says, I think the critic who tries to tear apart the accounts in the Gospels is the third blind man. (laughs) There are many claimed contradictions, but all of them are reconcilable. He becomes unblind Bartimaeus, right? Healed of blindness by Jesus, but he is ever known as blind Bartimaeus because of what's said here. You know, I can see in future years, you know, people they'd say, "Why are you called blind Bartimaeus?" You know, you can see. And say, "Well, let me tell you about it." <laughs> you like people, you know, saying, "Why are you called Hippie Bob?" You know, what happened to you? <laughs> well, I think someday we'll know him by his new name. We certainly will. But uh, Luke tells us that the people praised God on account of this miracle when it took place. Most people healed by Jesus are unnamed in the Gospels. Bartimaeus must have been a prominent man who was well known among the believers. He must have continued following Jesus after the church was born. Much as Simon of Cyrene was known, the man who was enlisted to carry the cross of Jesus when he no longer could, Simon and his sons were known among the believers by name. We see this later in Mark in uh, chapter 15 and verse 21. It says, They compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Certainly these people became well known among the disciples because they know, you know, Mark's telling them and, and saying, you know, remember, remember Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? And later we read about a Rufus in Romans 16:13, where Paul writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now, we don't know for sure if this Rufus in Romans is the same as the son of Simon or not. But he very well could be. Paul mentions Rufus's mother, and he says, she's also my mother. This is unlikely, literally, you know, that he, she was his mother, but spiritually true. And we read back in our last section in verses 28 through 30, how Jesus is talking about it's impossible for a rich man, to, or it's, it's as impossible for a rich man to enter heaven as for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then he says, with God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible. And you can go back and listen to that whole message if you want. But then Peter speaks up in verse 28 of chapter 10 and says, Look, we've left everything and followed you. And one of the other Gospels, he says, What are we going to get? And Jesus answers and says, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So this is one of those mothers received by a believer who has left everything for Jesus and the Gospels' sake, I believe. Rufus's mother, she's one of those mothers for Paul. This made me think of Jane Vickers' mother, uh, Phyllis Case. She became a godly mother to many young people who came to the Lord and did not have a godly mother in their lives. She was a faithful servant, and it does us good to remember her and emulate her behavior. She made many trips to Cornerstone when Andy was driving the bus and taking young people up there, and she would cook for them and, and do other things. She was our van mom on bike trips when we were going as a group different places, Alton, Illinois, and and Tunnel Hill, and she would drive the van with the trailer full of bikes. And then when somebody got worn out and they said, I can't go, 
two miles, you know, usually it was 18. But <laughs> uh, and she would come by and they'd load the bike up and they'd ride in the van with her, you know. And so, uh, well, she did many other things as well, as some of you know. So uh, Bartimaeus, Bart, we'll call him Bart, he finally finds out as the multitude passes through Jericho, this would be an unusual occurrence for a big crowd to pass through Jericho. He finds out that Jesus of Nazareth has passed by. He hears the crowd and Luke tells us, he asks, what does this mean? Or, What's going on? Why the crowd? Why is this multitude passing by? He, of course, has heard of the miracles that Jesus has done, and he sees his vision is better than many sighted persons. So he sees a rare opportunity to possibly be healed. It's like that old rhyme we used to say in grade school. uh, I see, said the blind man, as he picked up his hammer and saw. And so Bart here sees this opportunity and he begins to cry out, shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a messianic title. Bartimaeus has heard more than the stories of miracles or perhaps has come to his own conclusions about this one that he has been hearing about. He's the only one in Mark's gospel, at least what's recorded for us, who calls out to Jesus by name. And he's the only one who uses, uses the descriptive phrase, Son of David. Someone has said it was ironical that while the nation of Israel was blind to the presence of the Messiah, a blind Jew had true spiritual sight. Mercy was his plea and mercy he received. The Lord delights in showing mercy toward those who ask him and trust in him. In James chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so God would much rather show mercy than judge. If we err, let us err on the side of mercy and not on the side of judgment. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I mentioned before that when Chuck Smith was in Bible college, seminary, wherever he was, he would write this at the top of his exam papers. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And there is that promise of mercy. So then many warned him to be quiet, a sharp rebuke. They were really telling him, shut up, man. Stop your shouting. The devil will try to put obstacles in the way of any who would come to Jesus. It may take different forms. could be harsh circumstances, distractions, or as we have here, the opposition of other people, even close family. The enemy knows if he can somehow keep people from coming to Jesus, he continues to have them in his snare. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, A servant of the Lord, this is verse 24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. At one point we were all in that snare, and the Lord delivered us through his mercy. Come to Jesus and be released from the snare. Jesus is the Savior, the compassionate and merciful one, the good God, tenderhearted toward the suffering and the sinful, desiring to give life and give it abundantly to those who are under the curse of death. Bart cries out all the more when commanded to be silent. No way. I'm not shutting up. I'm going to do I'm going to do all I can to have an encounter with Jesus, the son of David. Just try to shut me up. Don't be dissuaded if some try to keep you from fully giving yourself to the savior. Go for it. It's your life. It's your relationship with him, no one else's. Spurgeon in regard to prayers of request said, "Rest assured, 
that those are the best prayers in all respects, if they be earnest and sincere, which go most directly to the point. Ask God for what you want. Don't hesitate to ask for what you need, since he has encouraged encouraged such prayers and has promised to respond to those prayers. So Jesus hears what's going on. He stops and he waits for him to catch up. Others now encourage him and say, oh, you know, he stopped. He's waiting for you. And we see again that God honors persistence in seeking and following him. Bart has been described as a man with a desperate need, a knowledge of the need, and a determination to have it met. Jesus has given us parables that teach us to persist in asking in prayer. In Luke 18, talking about a judge, an unjust judge. Verse 1, he says, He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, he knew the kind of person he was. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. It was starting to look bad for him politically. This widow keeps coming and asking him. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? It's important that we continue to ask. We should keep calling out to the Lord of Heaven concerning that which we need and that which we desire until we receive an answer. The strength of our request is revealed by the persistence of our pursuit of the need. Also in Luke chapter 11, after Jesus has taught them, talked to them how to pray, he says to them in verse 5, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. Midnight. And he will answer from within and say, Don't trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. So they had a big family bed. It says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. I'm not going to get any sleep tonight. I'm not going to get any peace. This guy won't leave me alone. Johnny, go down and give him three <laughs> I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. He says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, Jesus knows them also, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's promised the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is ask. He will give us the Holy Spirit. He will fill us with His Spirit. So we should keep pounding on the doors of heaven until we receive an answer to our plea. How serious are you about your request? He may not answer immediately. He may say no. He may say, as he did to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul came to him, about this thorn in his flesh that was bothering him, he said he pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. And in verse 9, it says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He might say to you, my, you know, Lean upon my grace. Trust in my grace. It's sufficient for you. But let him say that to you. Keep seeking until you know that he has said something, either no or something along those lines to you. Paul, after he heard this, he said, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. 
not for any other reason. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Because God would provide that strength to him. So keep crying out until he hears, stops, and responds to your cry, as he did with Bart. This persistence is also commanded in the Old Testament. And on Thursdays, we've been going through Isaiah, and it's, it's amazing how many times what we're doing on Thursdays will coincide closely with what we're doing on Sundays. Uh, we just uh, covered Isaiah 62 a couple of weeks ago. And in verse 1, the, I think this is the Lord speaking, he says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, as her salvation, as a lamp that burns. And then later in verses 6 and 7, he says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This is God's will, and he wants us to be persistent in this. Spurgeon again says, Take the gates of heaven and shake them with thy vehemence as though thou wouldst pull them up post and bar and all. We see a reference there to Samson's day when Samson going out of the uh, one Philistine city ripped the, the gates out of the city wall and carried them up. You know, he didn't carry them down to the valley. He didn't carry He carried them up a hill. <laughs> and Spurgeon is likening it, our, our prayers to this. He says, stand at mercy's door and take no denial. Knock and knock and knock again as though thou wouldst shake the very spheres. But what thou wouldst obtain an answer to thy cries. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. Cold prayers never win God's ear. Draw thy bow with all thy full strength if thou wouldst send thy arrow up so high as heaven. Serious prayer. So this man throws aside his garment and, you know, is led up to where Jesus is. Um, I'm told the beggars wore a particular garment that they were known by. Today we know them by their cardboard signs. He wasn't going to need this garment any longer, so he was not careful about where he left it. His faith is on display in his actions here by casting aside his garment. And so Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? That's the same thing he asked James and John right, earlier. What do you want me to do? So what, what can I do for you? And uh, Jesus asked to see, perhaps considering his most pressing need at the time. Well, no, that's, uh, Bart asked to see, you know, getting his vision, perhaps considering his most pressing need at the time. But like the woman at the well, if he fully recognized who was speaking to him, perhaps he did, given his Christ, son of David, he might have asked for much more. You know, he uses the title for Jesus, Rabboni. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's when Mary, Jesus appears to Mary at the tomb and she recognizes him and she calls him Rabboni. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word. It's related to rabbi, but it's a strengthened form of rabbi and it means my Lord or my master. Hey, don't stop short in asking. Ask him for the max and let him decide what to give. Uh, another thing that Chuck Smith used to say is when he, when he would pray, he wouldn't necessarily ask the Lord for a certain outcome. He'd, he'd say, I don't want to limit the Lord. You know, whatever he wants. You know, I might ask him for this, but he wants to do something much greater. And that's the idea here. Ask for the max. Let him decide what to give because... Uh, as we read last week, we sometimes do not have because we do not ask. In James chapter 4 and verse 2. In Ephesians 3, to encourage us, it says, Now to him who is, this is a verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, Jesus heals the man. He receives his sight. He tells him, your faith has made you well. 
We saw the man's faith on display. Jesus does not tell him to follow him. He said that to some people. Nor does he tell him not to. He tells him, go your way. His way, the way he freely decides to go, is to follow Jesus on the road. Jesus' way becomes his way. Not just his eyes have been made whole, but his heart has also received a new direction. We see once again as well the place of faith in receiving good things from God. God gives many good things, whether we believe or not. Many good things to those who do not believe at all. But many good things and the best things he gives to those who believe, to those who trust in him with all their heart. Someone has noted that it was a good thing that Bartimaeus sought the Lord that day because the Savior never passed that way again. He was headed for the cross in Jerusalem. What would have been his fate if he had not cried out or if he had remained, uh, if he had allowed others to silence him? He surely would have remained blind and would likely not have been able to follow on the road. Adam Clark says, apply to the son of David. Lose not a moment. He is passing by and thou art passing into eternity and probably will never have a more favorable opportunity than the present. Let's go on, on into chapter 11. Beginning of chapter 11, a little title in the Bible, which is not necessarily inspired. It's called the Triumphant Entry. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? They, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, Why are you doing, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus goes up the climb toward Jerusalem. And he and the crowd draw near Jerusalem on the east to the villages of Bethphage and Bethany, the home of Mary, uh, Martha, Mary, and uh, Lazarus. And it's just beyond the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. Jesus had passed on the east slope of the Mount of Olives near Bethphage, which means house of unripe figs. And Bethany, which means the house of the poor, humble, oppressed, or house of misery. Two disciples, not named, are sent to find some transportation, a very specific request for the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, a lot of people think Peter was one of these guys. We don't know, but because of the details that are given here and Peter being close with Mark you know, later in life. The village itself is unnamed, even the village opposite, so it's probably one or the other of these. But at the entrance, they will find a colt tied, that is, an unbroken donkey. No one has sat, sat on this animal before. And they are to commandeer it, sort of. To commandeer is to compel someone or something to perform military service. This is, not for, this is for a higher purpose than military service. But they say the Lord has need of it. He's not yet ready for a military operation, but he has a very specific purpose. He's ready to present himself to the nation as their Messiah. Not exactly as they have expected, but according to God's plan, nonetheless. So Jesus sends for an environmentally friendly transportation vehicle. These disciples have no clue as to the meaning of what is going on, nor does the crowd. Uh, in one of the other Gospels, we'll see that 
the crowd was coming with Jesus, there were also those in Jerusalem for the feast, when Passover is approaching, and they come out as well. So you got this huge um, bunch of people out there. As things progress, they may think Jesus is ready to take the reins of power in an earthly kingdom, and that is what many of them thought. He has something else in mind, of course. The disciples are told how to handle any objection to their task. It's possible that the owner of the cult knows the Lord Jesus and that these men are speaking up. Uh, these men that speak up recognize the disciples of Jesus. You know, what's the secret password? Uh, Donkey Kong. So there may, but we don't, you know, we don't have, you know, none of them saying, hey, Pete, how you doing today or anything like that. So we don't really know exactly what, we simply don't know. We're not given that information. And if this is not the case of them being familiar, then it's simply a miracle. These were not foreign to Jesus at all. And from the implications of the language here, it seems to me that a miracle is most likely the case. So these guys go their way and all things turn out just as Jesus has told them. Uh, that was always the case when Jesus told them, you're going to go here and find this and see that. Uh, that. That was always what happened. And so they bring this colt to Jesus and they throw their clothes on it. He sits on it. The disciples throw their clothes on the colt as a covering for the rough hide. And many of the crowd actually spread their clothes on the road and cut down branches from the trees, palm branches, we're told elsewhere, and spread them on the road. That's the title of this day, Palm Sunday. This use of their cloaks was very generous given the cost and value of clothing in that day. One change of clothes was the most any but the rich would have. The poor only had what they were wearing. They would usually have an outer garment that they would sleep in, as well as, you know, when the weather was cold, and then they had a, an undergarment. This is the event we refer to as the triumphal entry. But Jesus comes weeping, not in triumph, weeping over the city, because he knows what's coming. He's not weeping for himself. He knows what's coming there also. But he find, we find no tears of Jesus weeping for himself. J. Vernon McGee says, I'm not sure that this was very impressive to those in Jerusalem. I'm sure it would not have been impressive to anyone who had been in Rome at the time that one of the Caesars returned from a campaign and had a great triumphal entry, a victorious return of a Caesar. It is said that so much booty and so many captives were brought back that the parade would go on for two or three days and nights. Here it was just a few Galileans, peasants, there was a multitude. But the impressive thing and the important thing is that the Lord Jesus is offering himself publicly. Here I am. I'm coming. I'm presenting. You know, he's, many times he's tried to conceal the fact of who he is. He didn't want it to proceed too quickly. That'd be the Father's timing. But here he's coming and saying, all right, I'm your Messiah. What are you going to do with me? David Guzik, also in this regard, says, We call this event the triumphal entry, but it was a strange kind of triumph. If you spoke of Jesus' triumphal entry to a Roman, they would have laughed at you. For them, a triumphal entry was an honor granted to a Roman general who won a complete and decisive victory and had killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. When the general returned to Rome, they had an elaborate parade. First came the treasures captured from the enemy, then the prisoners. His armies marched by unit by unit, and finally the general rode in a golden chariot pulled by magnificent horses. Priests burned incense in his honor, and the crowd shouted his name and praised him. The procession ended at the arena, where some of the prisoners were thrown to wild animals for the entertainment of the crowd. This was a triumphal entry, not a Galilean peasant sitting on a few coats set out on a pony. Jesus will have a triumphant entry. We'll read about that in Revelation 19, right? When he comes on the white horse. So the crowd is raucous, loud, disorderly. They're not violent, but they're celebratory. They cry out at the top of their lungs. They're shouting. They're celebrating. They are expectant. 
they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that quote from Psalm 118, that's Yahweh, the only true God. Tom Fuller says, for much of Jesus' ministry, he urged people to be quiet about who he was. When he, healed, when he healed, he told people not to say anything. When he confronted demons who recognized him as the Son of God, he told them to shut up. That's because it wasn't time for him to declare himself as the Messiah. On Palm Sunday, the time had come. Well, the, the word Hosanna means save now. It's time for you to bring salvation. And they're thinking from the uh, rule of Rome and to set up the kingdom now forever. The quote is from Psalm 118, which was recognized as a messianic psalm. Verses 25 and 26, it says, Save now, or Hosanna, probably in the King James. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Immediately preceding this declaration, we read uh, in verses 22, 22 through 24, which you'll recognize, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And so Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected, and he has become the chief cornerstone or capstone. Immediately after this, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in verse 27, it says, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You know, Jesus was nailed to the cross. But we're talking about sacrifice here also. So there's a psalm also that would traditionally be sung on this very day, the 10th of Nisan, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This would be four days before the Passover lambs were chosen. and Well, they were chosen on 10th, but before they were sacrificed. And so on this day, half the priests and Levites would stand on the eastern wall of Jerusalem, looking down on the Kidron Valley. I don't know, maybe the other guys were inside. I'll have to look that up. So they're standing on the eastern wall of Jerusalem, and they sing questions to the other half of the priests and Levites who are below at the base of the wall. And the ones below would answer. And this is in Psalm 24, verse 7. It begins, and these, this would be the guys below. They're saying, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the guys up on top would say, verse 8, Who is this King of glory? And the guys down below would begin again and say, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the guys above again would say, Who is this King of glory? And the guys below would say, The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. He's the one who's they're saying is going to come in the gates. The King of glory. And he does come through the gates. They don't uh, recognize him as such at this point. The common people are hailing Jesus as their Messiah, and he's presenting himself as their Messiah, but not quite in the way they expect. They also say, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, which comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not yet. Jesus is presenting himself as their Passover lamb. The Passover being four days from now, ready for inspection for blemishes. Can anyone convict him of sin? The sacrifice must be perfect. And as we proceed in Mark's gospel, we'll see their testing of him and his perfection in all their testing or challenging. We read about the Passover in Exodus 12, 3 through 6. Uh, part of it, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, that's this very day, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So they were all to kill their lambs at the same time. So they would have this lamb for four days, checking it out. No doubt the children would become very attached to this little lamb. Well, John, of course, John the Baptist sees Jesus. John one twenty nine. he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, Purge out the old leaven, that sin, that you may be a new lump since you're, you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. There are a couple of details from the other gospel accounts that um, talk about this event. In Luke 19, verse 37, it says, Now as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, getting ready to go down and then back up to the city, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, and saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answers and says to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. This is his triumphal entry. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the time of their visitation. And they are not recognizing it uh, despite all the shouting. In John chapter 12, we also read about this in, in verse 12. It says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So we got the crowd that was with him and then these others coming out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb, which took place in chapter 11, raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They've been trying to minimize or take Jesus or kill Jesus in any way they can. And they see this great event taking place. But it's not too long after this triumphal entry that Jesus says to the Jewish nation in Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they've just been saying this, right? They've just been shouting this, but not in the way that it was meant to be taken. And so that day will come. It is going to come when Israel will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and he will come back to deliver them. Well, the. Um, quote about the donkey and him riding into Jerusalem is from Zechariah 9.9 where it says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just in having salvation lowly riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey so this was written back in the days of Zechariah later he will come on the white horse the donkey, it was uh, when a, a ruler would ride into a town on a donkey, he was 
proclaiming peace. When he came on a white horse, he was coming as a conqueror or coming to judge. And so uh, we see the, the white horse later and probably not that far in our future. <laughs> that will be taking place. But first he's going to pass through Sheol or Hades in his death. In Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, a song that I think Steve wrote the music to that we sing. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, speaking of the Messiah, he's dead. He's in Sheol. But the Father will not allow him to see corruption. He's going to be raised from the dead. Now, it's not too long. I'm sorry, that was something I already read. They have cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they did not mean for this time or for this purpose. They only cried out for the conquering king and not the suffering servant. The nation rejected him because he did not match their desire. They would have taken it back if they could have done it again later on. What good does a dead Messiah do for us, they may have said. But he did not stay dead, and many of them turned back to him later and received him. But many stumbled at that stumbling block of his suffering and death, not recognizing what it meant. Jesus would have come through the east gate of Jerusalem when he came down from the Mount of Olives, which directly aligned with the east gate of the temple and the Holy of Holies, if the temple was located where many think it was. This would not uh, be right where the Dome of the Rock or the Alaska Mosque are today, but off toward a small cupola. And this would allow for the rebuilding of the third temple uh, without destruction of the mosque. We know that there is going to be a temple, a third a Jewish temple built. It's going to be there on the Temple Mount. Uh, and preparations have been made. Everything's ready now except the red heifer. And they have candidates that they're looking for because you have to have the ashes of the red heifer for purification. They have all the priests and Levitical garments made. They have the lampstand and the altar. They've, they've prepared everything. They just need a building to move it all into uh, if the temple is in this place, which is directly aligned with, the, aligned with the east gate, it would put the mosque in the outer court of the temple. And in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, we find John being told, says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Ride and, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Back in Ezekiel, chapter 44, verses 1 and 2, Ezekiel is writing about the millennial temple, which is not the third temple. That's going to be a, a later temple. And that's what he's writing about here. But what he says here is interesting. It says, he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. So the gate of the sanctuary. And he says, The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Be lifted up, O ye gates. Lift up your heads, for the Lord of glory shall come in. The Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Uh, in uh, Ezekiel 33, getting lost a little bit in my notes sometimes. In Ezekiel 43, he talks about this gate where the Lord brings him to the gate and so forth. So he's he's not talking about that, that third temple, but certainly we know that uh, the Lord God has entered in through that east gate. And he, he came in through it more than once, I'm sure, and went out through it. But in his triumphal entry, he comes in and he goes down through the east gate. And the east gate has been sealed up since then. 
I can't go through there anymore. And, and a lot of it has to do with uh, Islam. They're seeking to prevent any kind of fulfillment of Jesus' second coming. So they put this big cemetery there because nobody's supposed to go through the cemetery. You know, uh, It's not going to stop him. You know, when he comes back, he's likely going to enter through that east gate and go right up into the temple again because he is going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. And, and Zechariah uh, 14, we see his the foot of Yahweh, God, touching down on the Mount of Olives, and it split half to the north, half to the south. Well, we don't know where the temple is going to be built yet. We have to wait and see where the tribulation temple is built. And, you know, we may not see it before or after. We might see some preparations. We might not. And I don't know if we're going to really be interested in looking down from heaven and saying, oh, look, there's where the third temple is. We'll find, maybe we can find out later, you know. Perhaps the dome, the dome will be destroyed in the Battle of Ezekiel, as written in Ezekiel 36 through 39, or at um, some other time. Uh, there was an interesting statement made by the Saudis, you know, maybe within the last couple of months, and it, I think it has to do with their concern about Iran and the opposition there, but they made the statement that, you know, Jerusalem's not really that important in Islam. Medina and Mecca are important. This, this was some spokesperson for the Saudis. And saying, you know, the Jews, they have a right to a temple, you know, on, on the Temple Mount. I mean, this is... <laughs> Where's this coming from? You know? <laughs> but we see, you know, the ground being prepared for prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, concerning this uh, triumphal entry, Corey Tinboom was once asked if it were difficult for her to remain humble because of the way the Lord used her around the world, you know. And her reply was simple. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments onto the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of it was for him? And she continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all honor. I'll finish with a little poem by G.K. Chesterton. He said, When fishes flew and forests walked, and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born, with monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms beneath my feet. Signed, the donkey. 